Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. I'd just like to refer briefly to the latest EU Commission forecast for the Irish economy, which was published yesterday. Uh, They're now forecasting that Irish GDP will grow by 14.6% this year, which is a doubling from their previous forecast. Um, And I suppose the EU Commission is really just catching up with everybody else, including the Department of Finance. They contribute the marked upward revision to the multinational export performance and stronger domestic demand, forecasting 5.1% in 2022 and 4.1% in 2023, and warning about inflation rising further in 2022. So that presents another very upbeat assessment of Ireland's economic prospects and I think most of us who try and forecast the Irish economy uh, would probably not find too much to criticise in that forecast or to disagree with. But as I said, I was speaking at an event in Dublin last night and in the Q&A discussion afterwards, um, a number of thorny issues, I guess, came up in relation to the Irish economic situation. And I'd just like to bounce some of those off you to see what your perspective is, because I think they're all really important issues. One is the sustainability of the public finances and the whole question about does debt really matter at this stage? And there were two very divergent views in the room. Some believe, like myself, um, in a pretty old-fashioned way, I guess, that debt does matter, particularly for a small open economy like Ireland, where international confidence is so important. And then we had others in the room who say debt doesn't matter that the Irish government should just continue to borrow 
to spend its way out of all of the problems that are happening at the moment. And related to that is the whole question about the sustainability of government expenditure, because what we've seen over the last few years has been a consistent ratcheting up of government current expenditure. And we did see clearly during the COVID-19 crisis a significant increase in government spending in health and social protection particularly. But looking at the expenditure plans into the future, there would appear to be no appetite whatsoever at a political level to roll back on any of that spending. And I think that does reflect the fact that once governments commit to government expenditure, it is politically very, very difficult to roll back on that. So those two issues are interrelated about the sustainability of the public finance situation. Uh, The increased cost of living and the cost of doing business came up for a lot of discussion. And we we will be talking a little bit later in the podcast about uh, the most recent inflation data that we've got around the world this week. Uh, But it's suffice to say that here in Ireland, the cost of living is rising very, very strongly and indeed the cost of doing business. So The whole question again, and this is something we have discussed, but it warrants a lot more discussion about the transitory nature. Are are we entering into an old-fashioned wage price spiral uh, that will ultimately do serious damage to the Irish economy? But some would believe that actually what Ireland needs at this juncture is a good old bout of decent inflation. So that's uh, something I'd like to talk to you about. Uh, There's the whole question about the... Uh, European Union relationship with the United Kingdom and the possibility of the um, UK um, invoking Article 16, thereby, you know, basically dust binning the Northern Ireland Protocol and the the implications of that, particularly the implications of um, Ireland's overall trading relationship with the European Union. And the final point is a somewhat more controversial point, and that's a political one. Um, there, I, I think anybody who observes the opinion polls in Ireland now would have to conclude that unless something dramatic changes, um, Sinn Féin will be part of the next government. Um, and, and the only question really is how big a part will it be in that government? And I know that already Sinn Féin is directly contacting public servants Uh, which is a little bit unusual, but there appears to be, uh, to discuss nothing sinister here, just to discuss matters of policy and so on. But what it does suggest, or so I'm told, is that Sinn Féin is now um, preparing the way for a move into government and it's building up relationships with the public servants that it believes it will be dealing with when it becomes part of the next government. And... um, the, the question then, of course, is Sinn Féin in government, what would that imply for the taxation of wealth and the more well-off people in the country? And um, I think it's clear that a lot of wealthy people have already or have contingency plans in place to deal with the eventuality of a Sinn Féin government. So in other words, um, if Sinn Féin come into government and there's a serious attack on wealth, Uh, the chances are most of the wealth will have been moved offshore anyway at that stage. And then the burden, as usual, will fall on the squeezed middle classes who pay for virtually everything that happens in this economy. So it's it's, it's an interesting um, issue, I think, to discuss. And I think it's absolutely central to Ireland's medium and longer term 
economic and social future. Um, it's funny, as the Q&A was going on last night, um, I mean, I do have at last half full attitude towards Ireland's future. But then when you see all of these issues being brought up, you just wonder, is that optimism naivety? And, um, you know, is there a significant danger that Ireland could experience a very significant economic and social shock um, over the next few years? History is very much in favour of the pessimists in the sense that uh, Ireland, once a decade or so, does seem to go through a very traumatic economic shock, at least certainly in the last 30 years, there's, there's been a few. There's a lot there, Jim. So let, let's try and take it from the top. The fir- very first question you asked was, does debt matter? There's a short and a long answer. Of course it does. Uh, but I think the answer, as it is often the case with economics, the only honest answer that you can give is that it all depends. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute. But the first thing to say is that the first mistake that many economists make, but certainly a lot of uh, and understandably so, lay people make when it comes to debt is that they start thinking about government finances in the way that they think about household finances. And that just couldn't be more wrong. Uh, for all sorts of technical reasons that were first outlined by the great economist John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s and then refined over subsequent years, we know that the government is not a household and that there are lots of contradictions, paradoxes that arise if you make the mistake of thinking that it is. We could go into that, but it would be very geeky. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Let's not make that mistake. Debt matters. Yeah, of course it matters. What does it all depend on? Mostly it all depends on uh, whether or not you can pay it back and whether or not you can afford the debt servicing and whether or not your level of debt suggests that you could have a debt crisis. Now, those are all very different concepts. Let's deal with the last one first. Debt crisis, we had one of those during the financial crisis when people stopped buying Irish government debt and indeed other countries. Uh, Ireland couldn't borrow from the markets to either finance its day-to-day operations or indeed to roll over debt that was maturing. Sometimes it's just a question of price, which is effectively the interest rate that you are being charged for your debt and what the market will be prepared to lend you at. If the price is too low, or in other words, that the interest rate is too high from, for, from some criteria, not least the tax revenues that you've got to generate to pay off the interest, then you've got too much debt. And that can change with changes in interest rates. So on any given day, you can have a level of debt and bond yields that look quite sensible. And if bond interest rates go up, then all of a sudden you've got too much debt. That can change. It really does all depend. Crisis is is rarer than that problem. Um, We've had it recently, but we haven't had it too often. Other countries have had it. They have to go cap in hand to the IMF. How much debt portends or forecasts or indicates that you might have that kind of crisis. Again, it varies and it isn't the same day to day from month to month. And so there's no easy answer to that question, which unfortunately is true. And people can throw their hands up and say, you're just being an economist here. You're just saying it's all terribly difficult. And that's because it is. There is no simple answer to say that, for example, the only answer to the question about how much debt, you just can't say less or more. That's facile. And you have to do a very technical exercise to suggest that these sorts of levels of debt look sustainable. They don't look sustainable. This level of borrowing looks right. And it doesn't. So you start to develop rules of thumb. You start to say, okay, well, what does this debt mean? What does this level of borrowing now mean for the debt trajectory of the country over the next few years? And we start looking at things like debt GDP ratios 
And in Ireland, that, of course, is tricky because GDP is not the appropriate denominator. And we get into all those sorts of discussions. And what we like to see is debt GDP not going off to the moon. We prefer to see it stable or coming down. There's no, and there's no particular reason why it should come down, actually. Stable is good. Those are the sorts of quite technical conversations, analyses, models, spreadsheets that you have to build to answer your question. And provided you don't have a situation which debt is skyrocketing as a proportion of your economy, you're probably okay. But you've got to keep eyes on firmly on your debt service costs and always be prepared to answer the question, what are we going to do if interest rates go up? Governments should stress test their finances in the way that the regulator stress tests banks. Banks are told, well, actually, what happens to your loan book if and your profits profitability if interest rates go up? Governments, I think, in every budget should be forced to do that kind of stress test exercise. And so, therefore, it's complicated, it's nuanced, it's subtle, and there is no black and white, this is good, this is bad answer. People get very frustrated with me when I start talking like this, but unfortunately, that's just the way the world is. And I guess the whole government expenditure piece is built into that. Uh, the third issue was the whole cost of doing living. Um, before I intro you into that, um, yesterday we got the October inflation numbers, 5.1% year-on-year growth in prices, which is the highest since April 2007. So that that's a 14-year high. Uh, transport costs are up by 15.4%, and within that, new cars, 8.8%. And that probably reflects um, the move towards EV and also the shortage of cars because of semiconductor issues. Petrol up 21.6%, diesel up 25.3%. And indeed, I had a bit of a coincidence this morning. I filled my car and when I got home, I'd received an email from a listener to this podcast saying that for the first time since he got his diesel car, it cost him over €100 to fill it. And coincidentally, five minutes earlier, I had had exactly the same experience. So energy costs having a massive impact and then in the, the housing, water, electricity and gas component, up 10.8%. Rents continue to rise strongly, up 7.5%. Electricity, up 15.5%. Gas, up 22.6%. And wait for it, coming into the winter season, when we're starting to switch on heating, home heating oil is up by 70.9%. Uh, communications costs are up by... air travel costs are up significantly, restaurants and hotels up 4.1%. The only thing that actually declined was clothing and footwear down by 2.4%. And the only reason for that decline was because we've had a lot of aggressive sales as retailers who got stuck with stock during COVID are trying to offload that stock before they get stock in for the new season. But I, I could go on, Chris, but... That gives you a snapshot of the sorts of price increases that are now feeding through in the Irish economy that will have a significant impact on all of our real purchasing power. And, um, you know, one just worries if these sorts of price increases become endemic, become built into the system. How, is that going to deliver um, a longer term bout of old fashioned inflation? Well, it already has. Um, and it's not just Ireland. Inflation in the United States is now over 6%, possibly going to get worse before it gets better. So 
Team transitory, as it's been called, those who joined in the central bank bandwagon earlier this year of saying this would all be temporary have been proved wrong. It, I think we, we, we need to draw a line under that and say quite emphatically, team tran- transitory have lost. Uh, but that still begs the question about what's going to happen next. And as always, we don't know. Your earlier remarks about the EU Commission doubling their economic forecasts for Ireland makes that point yet again that forecasting is a waste of time. If you can double your GDP forecasts from 7 to 14%, I don't know what those forecasts are actually worth. But, you know, what was the 7% all about? What's the 14% all about? I have no idea. Equally, we don't know how to forecast inflation. That might sound incredible, but we just don't know. But what we do know, what do we know? We know that actually there are lots of base effects, that there are lots of those transitory things that are still working their way through the system. I notice that gas prices, that's natural gas as opposed to gasoline, in recent days been coming back, been falling, the oil prices off a little bit. And I wonder, just as we are, this is pure idle speculation on my part, whether as we get worked up into a bit of a frenzy about inflation, because the numbers all over the world are much higher than expected, as I say, the transitory arguments have been defeated, whether this is actually the peak of the problem. And that speaks to your question about whether or not it's going to become endemic in the way that COVID seems to be becoming endemic and it's just built into our system. That's going to have a lot to do with what central banks do next. If it does become endemic then we've got higher interest rates in our future quite quickly. I don't know. I still think that central banks particularly in Europe are very reluctant to raise interest rates notwithstanding Irish inflation at at that level. But one little fact from this week that I hadn't realised made me sit up was that in Germany, inflation there is higher than it ever has been since they lost the Deutschmark. Wow. So 4.6% year on year. And it hasn't been that way since, the, since for a long time, for over 20 years. The Germans will be very upset by that because they historically, of course, um, almost beyond cliche, hate inflation for obvious reasons. So even the ECB is going to have to take take note. But that said, the Americans, with what, what are you doing with interest rates at near zero and inflation at 6%? I don't recall in economic history that the, those circumstances ever happening. In normal times, the interest rate shouldn't be too far away from the current rate of inflation. Um, but these are not normal times. And the most that anybody is expecting for US interest rates, even if they have to move a lot sooner than many people previously thought, is a a quarter point, half point rise in a couple of steps by the middle of next year, which shouldn't scare the horses, but probably will. And that goes back all the way to your point earlier on about debt, is that if those kinds of interest rate rises cause a debt problem in any or a number of countries, then you'll have the answer to your question, Jim, is that we have too much of it. Um, And that's the worry. We won't know until we actually see the interest rate rises. But um, that's what everybody's concerned about, is that relatively small rises in interest rates now are going to cause havoc in all of these debt markets because there is so much of it. Because we don't know, the prudent, sensible thing to do now, given that we are pretty sure that absent something surprising happening now, current rates of inflation mean that interest rates do have to rise at some point relatively soon let's not find out if we have a debt problem and let's not be too uh, scientific about it and say okay 
let's be prudent and let's start cutting back on the additions to debt and being a wee bit more cautious about our borrowing. Um, and this is the time when you should be making those sorts of steps. So that's via a long series of steps discussing the inflation and the interest rate outlook as well as the uh, the original debt question leads me to the conclusion, Jim, that for once I agree with you on debt because I'd be much more dovish, I think, historically, much more relaxed about debt than you, is that because we're facing potentially the likelihood, probability of rising interest rates over the next few years, this is not a time for being cavalier about debt and borrowing. So I am with you that we need to err on the side of caution now for a while anyway. Mr. Frost and the EU, do you believe the UK is going to invoke Article 16? And if so, what the consequences will look like? Just before we came uh, on air with this podcast, Jim, I was reading an article on the BBC website just put up by Laura Koonsberg, a long article by her standards. And uh, she is reputed to be leaving her post as BBC political editor, and maybe the, this long-form article is a form of valedictory address. But in this article, she says quite emphatically that they are, maybe as early as next week, going to trigger Article 16. But she also says the smart money is uh, that it'll, they'll do it in December. She doesn't know whether it'll be a wholesale triggering of Article 16 or just a partial thing. Um, there's lots at play. There's the reaction of the EU. If we believe what the EU has said this week, then, Jim, I'm afraid to have to tell you, we're going to rerun the whole Brexit thing next year, mechanistically, by the terms of the treaty. And if they follow through on what they're threatening, they will um, junk the, the whole thing. In order to do that, they have to give 12 months notice, according to the treaty, which means that by the time this thing is triggered and they have had their little cooling off period, and then they issue their notice to terminate, um, their eviction notice, if you like, under the terms of the eviction legislation, and they have to give 12 months. We're looking at uh, the end of next year, the end of 22, as being yet another Brexit deadline. Just when we thought it was all over, um, back it comes. And at the end, although it's different, at the end of the day, this is a rerun of all that hard Brexit world trade terms exit that we got bored to death with through the whole course of the post-referendum period comes back. And uh, it obviously, who knows what will happen during that 12-month notice period. Nothing might happen. They may not talk to each other. And at the end of the period, the UK reverts to world trade terms. One assumes that during that period, they will be talking and effectively, God helps them, rerunning the Brexit negotiations. I can't imagine a worse vista. I really hope they don't do it because it, if they do, it means we're going to have to talk about it on this podcast and in other forums as well. And there couldn't be anything worse, really, I think. Because of that, because of that appalling vista, which I think might have even impacted on Boris Johnson's consciousness over the last few days, I wonder whether they might not pull back and seek some kind of a, a fudge. Um, and maybe a de minimis triggering of Article 16, that they do it in the smallest way possible so that they, for example, then can then placate or try to placate Northern Unionists by saying, look, we're playing hardball and we're doing something that you're asking, but not the wholesale junking of it that the the, the ultras, the Spartans, seem to want. This, this whole situation goes from bad to worse because I think it's very important to remember that the Brexit that has already been delivered 
was the hardest diamond hard Brexit the ultras always wanted that we always feared. They've got the hard Brexit. Now they seem to want to make it even harder by going to the ultimate Brexit, which is that world trade terms deal, which would be disastrous for the UK economy, um, even more so than the Brexit that they've got. It would be even worse if they do do it, I suspect. But obviously, I don't know. Sterling will fall. I don't think it's very good for the UK at all. But um, And of course, Jim, it's appalling for, for Ireland as well, politically, socially, economically. Of course it is. Uh, do, do you think um, along the way through this process that the, the risk of an all-out tit-for-tat trade war is a possibility? Yeah, it's a definite possibility. I think that, that the EU are more measured than that. But the EU seems to be in the mood for picking a, a fight. And one of the many reasons for that is that they've been pushed into this by Frost and Johnson. Frost has been quoted this week, although he's denied it subsequently, as saying to, in, in, a, in a conversation, or I'm not sure whether it was face-to-face or over Zoom or email or something, in which he sees himself as engaged in a culture war with Europe. Now, if this is what these people believe, it's certainly, well, it's certainly consistent with their actions. Um, it is, and it is the most extraordinary thing. So you put that on top of all of the lies or the simple fact that they are reneging on a treaty that they signed a relatively short time ago. There's no trust between Europe and Britain. There's no affection. And I think the mood in Brussels and in capitals around Europe, not least in Dublin, is is to pick a fight now whether that's a trade war fight i'm not sure um the all of the indications are so far as i say that uh they'll simply say well the withdrawal agreement and in particular the trade and cooperation agreement uh is toast and here's your 12 month notice well it's, it's all reminiscent of what churchill said back in the 1920s we are with europe but not of it uh, the whole and and that of course was said in the context of a UK uh, economy and country that was close to the peak of its empire. I'll go back to the book that we discussed with Duncan Weldon, um, two hundred years of muddling through. Um, the one thing I, I reread it again on holidays, and the thing that struck me about it most of all was just over two hundred years, and particularly over the last hundred years, how the might of the British Empire actually declined there would appear to be absolutely no recognition of that whatsoever and the sort of behavior of people like david frost talking about engaging in a culture war with the european union uh, is basically coming from the standpoint of where britain was over 100 years ago at the peak of its empire i I think it's, it's it's absolutely mad stuff and you really would wonder over the next couple of decades uh, how far back all of this rubbish is going to set the UK, if indeed the UK actually survives as a united entity during that period. Uh, and then, of course, we have the island of Ireland. Uh, you know, what comes of that? Because there is no doubt about it, the most appalling vista for us would be an all-out trade war with the United Kingdom, and particularly with the Great Britain, Britain part of the United Kingdom, given how important it still is as an economic trading partner, and also um, as a sort of a political friend in inverted commas. So it, it's it's absolutely mad stuff, but it's all consistent with, I think, a perspective both of us would have 
would have had on Brexit since the beginning, that this is an absolutely barmy notion. There's zero upside for the UK from Brexit. And the only question is how much downside it will deliver. Uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. Chris, the final piece I alluded to earlier was the whole domestic political scene here and the spectre of um, Sinn Féin forming the next government, which I think most people would accept at this stage, um, apart from those that live on another planet. So what, what do you think the implications will be? Oh, many and varied. And again, uh, it all depends on your, on your perspective where you come at this. There's, there's the, I guess, political or even anthropological perspective of those who I see writing reasonably regularly around the place that what this means is that the army council of the IRA effectively take over government of the Republic because Sinn Féin, according to these sorts of writers, are still very beholden to the army council. Sinn Féin, of course, say that the army council no longer exists because the IRA no longer exists and it's all bogus nonsense dredging up, dredging up the past. I don't know, um, but I certainly personally believe that there are still strong links between those two two organizations. The economics of Sinn Féin are slightly easier to talk about. Going back to that first one, I've no idea how anybody could remotely think about voting for that kind of political setup for for running a country. It's not too long ago that uh, Sinn Féin uh, didn't regard any uh, government of the Republic of Ireland as a legitimate government. From the predating partition, it always believed that it was the legitimate party of government, but but that's all water under the bridge. We're not allowed to talk about that sort of stuff anymore. People people t- don't respond to it. Sinn Fein have undoubtedly economically been moving to the centre, Jim, in terms of their policy pronouncements. I, I don't know whether you'd agree with that, but that too has been the article I've seen written several times in recent weeks. That um, as with all radical, revolutionary, violent political parties around the world that they eventually take power after a, a, a slow, gradual move to the political centre in order to get the necessary votes. Do you think that they've done that? It's hard to tell because if, if you look at the last few election manifestos, uh, there was stuff in there that some people would find worrying, uh, and I certainly would. But then a, a lot of its verbiage, particularly in recent times, does fly not totally, but does fly somewhat counter to that. And that there is definitely a process of moderation going on in terms of the pronouncements, at least. And that is a sensible political strategy because uh, for those people who would regard themselves as sort of centrist, who contemplate voting um, Sinn Féin because they're totally disillusioned with what Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have done in recent years, um, you know, Sinn Féin has to be seen as a sort of a centrist, moderate type organisation. But is that then the policy that would be pursued once it comes into government? Um, I, I think the, the whole Sinn Féin phenomenon and the way in which young people particularly uh, have no memory or no interest in the violent past of that organisation and its affiliates uh, yeah, it's it's tricky. But as I say, the move to the centre, I think, has happened to an extent. And so they're spending and taxation policies, which are really a, a, all that they can do 
They're certainly at the left end of the political spectrum, but they're no longer at the extreme left. That said, we know that, for example, anybody earning more than 100 grand a year is going to pay higher taxes. We know that they're not going to be the party of fiscal prudence. One would expect them to be a high-spending government. And from the perspective of business, I think that the, the, the one thing I can't... I can't establish with any degree of certainty the extent to which they are going to be the party, the government of wealth taxes. That is very much their left-wing ideology. I was fascinated to see uh, reports at their recent Ardesh that uh, one of what a prominent Shinner was um, extolling the virtues of the Cuban economic model. Now, if, 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 that was, if those are the policies of the new Sinn Féin finance minister, should, should Ireland get one? then that is definitely not a move to the centre. If, if anybody knows anything about the Cuban economy, I can assure you Ireland would not want to emulate it. Um, but that just reminds me of the, the nether regions of parts of the Labour Party. There's people in the British Labour Party that believe Cuba is a wonderful economic model as well. So that's, that's not exclusive to Sinn Féin. Um, I think the, the rubber will hit the road uh, for high earners and... Uh, wealth taxes that those will be the the things that will that will mark Sinn Fein out in terms of what they do and and again I don't know what they're going to do on that because fiscally there aren't many more levers to pull are there when you think about it what they could actually do uh, they're not going to put taxes up on average earnings because that's where their voter base is so they will go after higher incomes and wealth they've told us that's what they're going to do and the, the only debate to me seems to be you know the extent to which they're going. The, the, how far down that road they will go. Well, presumably the wealth will be gone offshore before then anyway, if it's a likelihood. Quite, quite possibly. That's what wealth, to the extent that it is mobile, will will move. Um, we've arguably seen some of that already. If you, if, if you believe that you're going to fu- you know, fund an awful lot of extra public spending by taxing billionaires, A, there aren't that many billionaires in Ireland. It, it ain't the United States. And B, that to the extent that people have that kind of wealth it is mo- a, a, certainly a high proportion of it is mobile. It's been said so many times that the extent to which um, you can raise serious revenues on anything, you have to tax where the money is, whether it's incomes or wealth. And most wealth in Ireland is tied up in two things, uh, property and pensions. And they've told us that they don't like property taxes. They are against the existing local property tax. They've told us they're going to abolish that. So that just leaves your pension, mate. And I suspect that they will go after your pension big time. That's because that's where the money is. And of course, Michael Noonan, as Minister of Finance, set the precedent there with the pension. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We've already taxed pensions before during the financial crisis. There is a precedent. The first thing to go will be all the pension saving allowances. So, so that those, the ability to save into a pension tax free will be cut back, curtailed significantly. Things like your pension lump sum when you retire or take your benefits, that will go uh, pretty soon in a, in a Sinn Féin administration. One piece of f- financial advice that would follow from that, if you believed it likely, so I heavily caveat it, is that if you think the pension lump sum is going to go, take it now, or in the next, you know, before the election. Uh, that, that, that would seem to be a, a prudent individual policy to follow. And don't expect um, to have the kind of tax breaks that pensions get now. And indeed, your pension pot, a la Michael Noonan, could well find itself a little bit smaller than it would otherwise be. Chris, before we wrap up, uh, there's two things I want to do. One is I just want to mark the week that's in it. 
Headline inflation in the Eurozone, 4.1%, 6.2% in the United States, 4.6% in Germany, 5.4% in Spain, and 5.1% in Ireland. These are incredible numbers that uh, I think we should reflect upon. Uh, finally, a very brief COVID corner. Things seem to be taking a significant turn for the worse at the moment. Yes, it's winter. We we have the seasonal rise um, that a lot of medics feared would happen. In Austria, they're talking about lockdowns for the unvaccinated. They're talking about lockdowns generally in Holland. Uh, the UK numbers actually, uh, after having, they're going up and down. They're not they're not go, as as awful as they are. But in Germany, the numbers are going up, and I know, of course, in Ireland, they're going up as well. So um, the the raw numbers are not great. The hope is that the hospitalizations and deaths that flow from that will not be as bad as it was last time. But it certainly isn't looking good, particularly for countries that have low vaccination rates and haven't really got their booster program going. And if you've got either of those problems, then you seem to have a particularly big problem from a health service point of view. But no, the whole COVID thing um, in terms of the raw numbers in a European context is looking pretty poor. Thanks, Chris. Cheers, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.